Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Sonia Cole, today's podcast guest, made the following statement in a LinkedIn article in 2021. ESG research and integration is part of an investment process to try and improve investment returns. It is not necessarily tied to values, ethics, morality, or mission. But Cole, who has been president of Zevin Asset Management since 2014, knows that values and ethics are central to the development of socially responsible investing. Cole talks to us about the mission of Zevin Asset Management, which is a 100% employee-owned, majority women-owned firm, and the legacy of the company's founder, Robert Zevin, who was a pioneer in sustainable investing. A philosophy that obviously works because the company has a 25-year performance track record that has been tested over a variety of market conditions. Hello, Sonia, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad you could join us this morning, and we're going to jump right in with our first question, if you're ready. Sonia, investment alignment with personal or institutional values has been at the core of your firm's approach to social responsibility for over two decades. How have you integrated the ESG analytics process into portfolio construction for values-focused investors? Sure. Thanks, Paul. So I think, you know, to some people, it may seem old fashioned or quaint or even naive, but we still deliberately call our work socially responsible investing because we think that this phrase encompasses ESG research, uh, advocacy and engagement, but also because socially responsible investing crucially involves values, which at the end of the day is what end clients typically really want. And when Wall Street firms sell ESG products, many financial advisors and their clients, I don't think necessarily understand that these products are necessarily values aligned. So, you know, a lot of marketing materials for ESG funds, they conflate the concepts of ESG integration and values-driven, socially responsible investing. And they can overlap, but they don't necessarily. So, you know, at Zevin Asset Management, we consider ESG factors in investment, not only for ethical reasons, but as markers of strong and enduring companies. And if you ignore those things and just focus myopically on short-term financials, as, as many professionals do, I don't think you get a full picture of what's happening inside companies. And, and we think then you're putting your money at risk. So, you know, I used to be a traditional equity analyst, and I know that by analyzing ESG information, we get a more complete understanding of our investments than what's captured by traditional financial analysis. But again, that's not impact. And impact is where you actively employ shareholder advocacy and corporate engagement to enhance shareholder value and create positive social impact. And I think that's really an important differentiator. And that's the only type of investing that we do for clients. Well, that's a perfect lead in to our next question, which is about shareholder advocacy. Sonia, give us an example of how Zevin Asset Management shareholder advocacy 
has motivated companies to improve their activities around human rights, climate change, and other risks to long-term profitable relations. Sure, happy to do that. So, you know, uh, actually, I, I want to start with the ESG part and then how that feeds into shareholder advocacy. Please do. There's a nice feedback loop there. So, you know, to find investments that we have confidence in, we examine how companies operate in, in this turbulent world that we all live in. So, you know, we're trying to answer how companies are positioned for an unpredictable future, how they impact their employees and their customers and the world around them, and then how are they limiting risks by taking roles in their community seriously. And so, you know, we use a whole econometric model to um, try and get to the bottom of, of this in terms of um, looking at different scenarios in which uh, companies operate. Um, and then, you know, how do, how do these figures come to a head, right, and directly impact company performance? You know, for example, in 2020, we had the wildfires disrupting supply chains, right, in, in the West Coast of the U.S. Um, we had employee treatment during the pandemic was a real core for companies. And it, it strengthened or weakened the reputational um, uh, aspect of companies. And then economic inclusion rose to the fore uh, among the Black Lives Matter movement and related social unrest. So, you know, these things all matter. And when we talk to companies who are really prodding them and poking them and trying to understand where they uh, what their role is in, in all of this. Um, you know, cutting edge shareholder advocacy is um, our way of creating substantial and long lasting change around companies and, and the world as a whole. And so that these kinds of issues that we look at uh, ESG issues with, with companies is then where we take the next step in advocacy and, and get them to do better. So that includes... Uh, proactive uh, proxy voting and uh, crucially dialogue and shareholder proposals that are voted on at company meetings with shareholders. We also do a lot of investor letters and um, quite uniquely uh, public policy advocacy as well so that we don't have to go company by company but try to uh, get things done at, at the state or federal level as well. So um, one thing we've been issue uh, we've been working on recently is linking executive pay to good management of sustainability issues. This is a common sense reform that's al already used at many companies like Microsoft or IBM or Intel, real leaders in ESG. Um, and in 2020, we had a shareholder proposal at Apple to link executive compensation to ESG, and it only got 12% of the vote of that year. Um, but after the shareholder meeting, Apple reached out to us to um, discuss our asks in more details. And then we had a, a series of meetings, and that then culminated in news that the Apple senior executive bonus plans uh, now have an ESG modifier. So now up to 10% of cash bonuses uh, will be linked to ESG factors. And that's a completely new practice for Apple. And that shows uh, executive buy-in around the company's sustainability goals, and we hope will accelerate further change because Apple has a long way to go. Um, so it's really them putting their money where their mouth is, and it's also a very clear example of the kind of David versus Goliath battle that we often have with companies. 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's just one step, but it's a, it's a great uh, story that we tell where a very large company has um, made a pretty significant change as a result of something that a small investor was looking for. And it shows also that you don't need to have, you know, millions or billions of dollars worth of shares to really create change. We often work in uh, coalition with other investors uh, to get the job done. And for that particular uh, engagement, we worked with the SEIU, the, the Service Employees Union, as well as the Pension Fund of Rhode Island. We were the lead filer, um, but they showed that there was institutional money behind this ask, which I think was also important to show Apple uh, the seriousness uh, to which we, we approached the conversation. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic story, Sonia. Again, there's nothing like collaboration. Uh, which is all about common sense, I believe. And that's what we focus on at the Sustainable Finance Podcast. And there's another way that you're applying, I think, common sense in a, in a, in a very fruitful way within your company. And that is that diversity is an intentional part of your firm's staffing and vendor relationships. How does this positively impact your ability to capitalize on market opportunities and improve your company's resiliency? Yeah, thanks for the question, Paul. So uh, to take a step back, we've committed to use our business as a force for good. And so we practice what we preach to our portfolio companies. Uh, we're, we're a certified B Corporation which requires that we consider employees and community and the environment when we make key decisions. And so we find it helpful to use this B Corporation framework to measure our own corporate sustainability. And so, you know, DEI is something that we work on a lot in terms of our shareholder advocacy and ESG. And so we've committed to hold ourselves as Zevin Asset Management accountable to promote racial equity and justice throughout our investments in our own work. So that includes embedding a racial equity lens in our own organization, as well as integrating racial justice into investment decision-making and our corporate engagement strategies. So, you know, in, in terms of the investment approach, it starts with avoiding investment in companies that have a history of exploiting communities of color and economically disadvantaged communities, and then continues with engaging companies to change their behavior. And to achieve this, we work in solidarity with BIPOC communities and activists, and we listen to them, we engage with them, and we amplify their experiences. And we bring their perspectives and expertise through shareholder advocacy to companies that may not otherwise listen uh, to that group. Um, so as a firm, we're comprised of 50% women, uh, currently 33% of our staff identifies people of color. And really, we believe that a more diverse and equitable and inclusive workforce will help us with innovation. And we're especially heartened by the fact that clients and gatekeepers seem to be paying much more attention to this issue in years past. So, you know, when we hire for a position, we're looking for curiosity and creativity and drive. But, you know, we understand that creating a very intentional, inclusive and equitable workforce starts with reforming 
hiring practices. So as we grow, we're looking outside of those traditional financial services networks that tend to be predominantly white and male because those people will have a very different lived experience. And that range of experiences allows us to bring different viewpoints to our work, which we think enhances the investment process at the end of the day. Um, something else that's kind of interesting about us is, you know, you mentioned Robert Zevin, who is our founder. And in 2010, he gave the firm's ownership to employees as part of the succession plan. And we've kept that tradition on. So units uh, from our share uh, issuances are also gifted to all staff rather than sold every two years. And not just to investment staff, right, or senior staff, as is common practice at most investment firms. We recognize that not all employees have the financial ability to buy into an ownership position. And we feel that selling units to employees can have the effect of excluding people of color and increasing that inequality divide that's present at so many investment firms. That's such a great practice, uh, Sonia, and congratulations again. And I'm sure your, your, your staff really looks for those opportunities to do their work exceptionally well, um, knowing that they're going to be owners of the company and already are. And, and you know, kudos to Robert for making that, that initial choice years ago. Uh, I remember you introduced me to him uh, uh, years ago at your office in, in Boston, and we had a, a great conversation about his, his history and as a sustainable investment uh, pioneer, really. Let's, let's catch up now with some work that's being done uh, around science-based target initiatives. Uh, and there was a, a lot of news about how the net zero standard that was established or launched at least during COP26 last year in Glasgow, how that was going to play out and, and what was going to be the result of that net zero um, standard being established. What sustainable investment objectives is the net zero standard designed to address? Thanks for bringing that up, Paul. I mean, this standard is now at the cutting edge of climate science, driving climate action. And it's the culmination of all the work that's been put into consensus building on the how do we get to net zero in an authentic way? So companies are committing to this standard and the goal is to set science-based net zero targets consistent with limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. And then these corporate goals are then verified by the science-based targets initiative. But there's still this yawning gap between those targets and, or between the, what, the science-based targets initiative is calling for and what companies are doing currently. I think. Yeah, commitments to net zero vary wild, wildly. The net zero standard is going to help them with their climate transition plans away from offsetting carbon to innovate innovation and investments into transforming their business model. You know, we can't do business as usual. Um, you know, we expect companies to innovate, right? Um, because climate change is a systemic risk, it requires company to, to push beyond the usual short-term wins of 
energy efficiency or renewable energy credits or carbon credits, which then buy carbon offsets. Um, and that is, is, is problematic, right? The, these things, the business as usual of, of that, of those kinds of short-term wins, it, it can't continue. Yeah, you know that's a bit, a bit historically. I think of that uh, a, a metaphor that I learned as a kid. You know that you're kicking the can further down the road, but you're not really dealing with the situation, uh, and that that definitely has to change. No question about that. So that really kind of the next question was about carbon offsets as a viable tool. Do you think that they have a role in achieving what these initiatives are all about over the next couple of decades? So the, the SBTI establishes there should be very limited use of offsets as companies transition to net zero, to true net zero. The net is not the important part as much as the zero is. Um, and earlier this month, Series released guidance for investors to assess the integrity of these corporate net zero commitments. I mean, some of them are farcical, right? You have tar sands companies, uh, uh, um, you know, introducing net zero commitments, and they're just using carbon credits to deliver. Um, and so, you know, the the company, the number of companies committing to net zero is increasing, but the use of credits is also increasing as these unregulated carbon markets proliferate. And I think there's this real danger of taking a binary type of like check the box approach with whether a company has committed to uh, science-based targets or not. So, you know, corporate plans could be limited to scope one or scope two, not even counting scope three, where most emissions are embedded, depending on the sector, of course. Companies may also be offsetting a huge portion of their emissions and claiming to be carbon neutral, which is clearly not business transformation, but more of a hall pass, you know, as we talked about, to consider business as usual. So, you know, overlooking this kinds of diligence or um, could bring... Uh, reputational risk or litigation risk or brand risk. And I think it could be harming much more than doing good. So, you know, investors really need to look very closely at what these corporate climate action plans include. And that needs to include a social component. So, you know, what Zevin is known for is really uh, our social, our work on social issues and environmental issues are very closely tied often with social issues. And in this particular uh, aspect, the social impact of climate action plans can't be overlooked. If we're going to have a just transition that embraces social impacts and protects or enhances um, the quality of life of communities that live nearby or on the land that's being restored or planted or protected along with this carbon offset. So, you know, one of the risks, and we wrote about this recently, um, is that we're worried about companies who rely heavily on offsets. They're pushing the costs and the responsibility of mitigating climate change to less wealthy communities, typically in the global south, where a lot of the potential for forest carbon credits exist. Okay, so there's a lot to digest there. And if you would just very briefly uh, tell our listeners who Ceres is. I'm not sure how many people in our audience are familiar with their work. 
Ceres is a Boston-based nonprofit that's been operating for decades, bringing companies and investors together on important environmental issues. And they have a, a coalition of investors, uh, the Investor Night Network on Climate Risk, um, where we really push companies as a group to help them be much more sustainable. Got it. Okay. Well, Sonia, we have a couple more minutes left in today's conversation, and I think we're at the last question that, that, that I wanted to ask you today, and it may be the most important one. In response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, investors are using the capital markets to impact international political policy in a socially responsible way. What's your point of view on the staying power of this initial financial response based on social justice and human rights issues? So I understand this crisis and the investment community's role in it more than most. I'm a Ukrainian-American uh, with a past career as a Russian stock analyst. So when Putin invaded Ukraine on February 24th, this was his third invasion in 12 years. And investors had no excuse for being invested in businesses with ties to the Russian state. This was not a surprise to Russia watchers. So the best outcome from Ukraine at this point is a swift end to the war, uh, brought on by a change in Russian leadership. So investors are responsible to help create an environment in which an overthrow of the current Russian regime by the military or populace is the only viable option. So by evaluating Russian supply chains and isolating companies that contribute to Putin's war machine, investors can help weaken Russia's economy and financial system. So, you know, we are monitoring the divestment activities and strength of action by multinationals with ties to Russia, similar to the actions taken by responsible investors against apartheid in South Africa. Um, so we, we've never invested in Russia, but we do invest in companies that do have some ties to Russia. So we're holding business leaders accountable to their words and actions in, in the hope that they will understand. And I think many of them have come to the conclusion that profits derived from involvement with the Russian regime are not worth the inherent risks, and they only serve to validate uh, Putin's atrocious actions. So I think what's really interesting as a follow-on to this is that the horrific impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine should be a wake-up call for anybody in countries or anybody that's invested in countries with authoritarian regimes uh, and reminders that investors can become targets just as easily as dissidents. So how companies and investors respond to this threat will set a precedent that reverberates globally. And unless we prove to China, who is watching this response to Putin's invasion very closely, that Western companies and investors are brave enough to stand up to authoritarianism and that investors crucially have that will to forgo profits, I think we risk future war on a potentially much larger scale. Yeah. Yeah, I know I've been talking to a lot of contacts that I have in Europe since the invasion started I, and, and, and before the invasion, of course, and, and people there are, are, are reasonably very, very concerned. It's just the first step. It could be followed by many other pushes. And as you say, the Chinese could ultimately make very important decisions about their future based on what they see happening in this conflict in Ukraine. So, Sonia... 
Where online can our listeners learn more about Zevin Asset Management's approach to working with clients, and how can they get in touch with you with questions about what we've discussed on today's program? Sure. So our website is the best place to learn about us. We're on www.zevin.com, Z-E-V-I-N.com. You can reach out to me through our website. Uh, We are also pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. I don't have a personal Twitter account, but I am personally quite active on LinkedIn and, and folks are welcome to follow me there as well. Terrific. Okay, well, thank you very much again, Sonia Cole, President at Zevin Asset Management. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for the next episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 